This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and here we're, as always, Mr. Terry Menard. Hey, uh, and I have a question, Joe. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's in Art Hindle's contract that he must wear fashionable coats <laughs> and cozy coats in his movies? Because, uh, I mean, I haven't really seen him in a whole lot, but we are two for two with mm-hmm. Black Christmas and uh, the movie we're talking about today. Indeed, yes. Art Hindle, fashion icon of the 70s, Ugh. perhaps? I want both of his coats. I, his coat in this movie looks so comfy in that cold weather. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his fur coat from Black Christmas is just an iconic look. Yeah, I think if I was going to rank them, I'd put the Black Christmas one first. But this one is definitely oh, yeah. a good second. It's very cozy. Mm-hmm. And this movie is very cold. And yep. it feels like that that is the appropriate wear for uh, for the brood that mm-hmm. we're talking about today. Yeah. So, folks, we're back on the David Cronenberg side of the podcast talking about 1979's The Brood. And, Terry, this is an interesting one because so many of the films we're talking about are brand new to you. Mm-hmm. And then there's this one, which you have seen, you have talked about on your podcast, Scarred for Life. So, uh, we we ventured that we might... Just have a conversation about what's different on a second watch or maybe a third watch for you. But I'm curious, did you glean new insights or new tidbits or something when you rewatched this movie? Uh, I think that what I focused on a lot uh, on this this rewatch, because this is, I think, the third time I've seen it. I saw it once a few years ago and then when we had Carter Smith on the podcast, this was Mm. his, his choice. So I watched it then. And I, when I rewatched it that one time, I didn't really have like, I wasn't really thinking about the time I'd seen it before mm-hmm. in terms of like re- reevaluating it. And so this time, one of the things that I had picked up on, on the second watch was the kind of way that this movie kind of tackles. I mean, I guess this is probably like a, a, a word that everyone uses now or a phrase that everyone uses, but generational trauma, where mm-hmm. like the idea of the parents kind of fucking up their kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those fingerprints are all over this movie, sometimes literally in blood. Yes. <laughs> in blood. Yes. But so that is the one is one thing that kind of popped out at me. The other thing was, is how much this is like hit like Cronenberg's. Uh, divorce movie. Oh, yes. yes In the yes, same yes. way that, like, I would posit that uh, Eraserhead for Lynch is sort of like him dealing with familial issues as well. Oh, right. Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about how Eraserhead felt like he was dealing with becoming a father. And you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, Eraserhead was always a question mark of how cognizant Lynch was, whereas Cronenberg here is very much on the record. Like, he saw Kramer versus Kramer. He felt mm-hmm. like it was unrealistic. He was going through his own messy divorce. He casts actors that look and kind of act like him and his ex-wife. Oh, I didn't realize that last part about his about casting actors as his ex-wife that look like his ex-wife. I, I mean, I don't know if it was that they look exactly like them or if he just you know, kind of help to make sure that they could be considered proxies, but he's right. very much working out some shit on the screen here. He really is. And, you know, I, it feels like 
when it, we always have like a male director tackling this kind of subject mm-hmm. in terms of I'm thinking again about possession, which right. you know, recently finally hit shutter in the Ooh. US. But I, that I mean, that movie is also about a man tackling his his problems with with divorce and his problems with dealing with his his wife. And mm-hmm. so I'm watching this. But but what I think stood out to me this time in particular is that there's a little bit more empathy than I was expecting for the the female character in here mm-hmm. versus the male character. Because like, I just, I don't know. I just always expect, oh, we're going to have, you know, the filmmaker bitching about his life and yada, yada, yada. Whereas right. here, I do feel like there's a little bit more of an interest in unpacking both sides mm-hmm. of that problem, if that makes sense. Yeah, I do. It's interesting, right? Because in some ways, Nola, the Samantha Eggers character, is not as present, right? Like, she's locked right. up at this commune wellness retreat, question mark, question mark kind of place. So really, our our main protagonist is Frank. Like, we're, we're really following mm-hmm. him. And yet... I do feel like we get a really clear understanding of who Nola is and why she's struggling because we're having conversations with her mom, with her dad, yeah. with, you know, question mark, mad scientist, doctor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. I tell you, Oliver Reed as, as Dr. Raglan, mm-hmm. what a... What a performance slash caricature of, of his acting style. It is weird, right? I mean, the the reason there was that extra long pause was, A, because I forgot his actual name and I had to look at my phone for a moment, but also because people frequently call him a mad scientist in this movie. And I'm just like, A, he's not a scientist. He's like a psychologist, right? which is a different kind of science. But like, I, I kind of want to have a conversation with you about whether or not Cronenberg likes psychiatry from this movie. (laughs) But I mean, to the same extent, like I wouldn't call him a mad scientist because Dr. Raglan does have a moral code. He seems to have a conscience. There's a reason that he clears out all of the other patients when Nola starts to go nuclear because he is worried. I mean, he's also clearing up bunk space for the brood, but I kind of feel like even he understands her capacity for violence because of what he's done. Like he's interested in furthering the science, but he also knows it's extremely dangerous. Like when Candy is there, he becomes really concerned and that's why he tries to help Frank. That's why he sacrifices himself. Yeah. I don't know. I I kind of feel that the story takes on like if you were to just isolate this story and focus it on on dr raglan it mm-hmm. it, it has like a a frankenstein complex where okay. mm-hmm. where we have we have a person who is you know messing with things maybe that they shouldn't be messing with in terms of bringing out someone's rage like i'm not i'm not 100 percent sure about this whole what is it plasma psychics or mm-hmm. what is that is that what it's called psychoplasmics psychoplasmics yeah so i i feel like you know we're, he's trying to do something in the same vein that frankenstein was trying to do something he creates a a creation that ends up turning on him and ultimately killing him mm-hmm. and so i think that like from like a very simplistic outlook that the story has that element of of a frankenstein and his creation in right. a way Okay, no, I I can totally see it. I think I was overlooking some of the obviousness of that. But when you said it, it became very evident. Yes, okay, those elements are definitely there. But I but I also think I I don't know, I think there's there's a little bit more. I think what you're kind of cluing into as well is there's a little bit more empathy towards this character, whereas sometimes Mm -hmm. I don't really see that empathy with 
with Frankenstein in terms of like the adaptations of, of him. So like here, I, I think that there is, there, there is this kind of moment where, as you're talking about, he gets rid of all the other patients and he's, you know, trying to protect people from it. I just, it sucks when you have like a character like Mike, who is who I, the first person we're kind of introduced to in mm-hmm. this movie. Right. And he's having this really kind of uncomfortable conversation about mm-hmm. his father who is looking down on him for not being a quote unquote manly man in a yes. way. And so that is like our introduction to this this movie, to Dr. Raglan, to everything. Mm-hmm. And he just sort of gets kind of discarded by the end of the movie because right. in a way you can see him being more interested in the in the success that he seems to be having with Nola. And so mm-hmm. I don't know, that kind of I don't, it rubs me the wrong way sometimes. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, Mike is definitely discarded. And we eventually learn that there's a number of Mike equivalencies, right? You know, Frank mm-hmm. goes looking and he discovers this other guy, Jan Hartog, who is launching a kind of class action lawsuit against Dr. Raglan because he has basically discarded them. If he can't fix you or if you're not exciting enough, he more or less pushes you to the curb or he i think bilks you dry because i'm pretty sure a lot of those people were paying a bunch of money to be there and get treated by him yeah so dr raglan isn't a great guy but i feel like in a more conventional film he would have been an out and out baddie and it would have been a more spectacular climax where he was the villain and not the brood and not nola to a certain extent like this You're right. I do think this movie has more empathy than we expect, but I think that's also by virtue of Cronenberg focusing primarily on this dysfunctional family unit and how Raglan circles around it. Yeah, that makes sense. I also, I I think one of the things that I picked up on this time, and it's only because we've been going through uh, Cronenberg's uh, filmography, Mm -hmm. is the way in which we have someone in science, whether that is uh, you know, psychotherapy or whether that is like mm-hmm. uh, medical surgery. science, yeah. yeah, whatever, doing something to women that ends up kind of mm-hmm. turning back on them yep. in a way. And so I, I think that this is an interesting kind of coda to the, this trilogy of, of films, if we can call them as such, that kind of <laughs> deals with medical or people that are playing God or trying to do something that they probably shouldn't be or, or digging into areas where they probably should not be digging and end up creating a monster out of a female character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because there's been a lot of work done on some of these early Cronenberg films about the concept of like the monstrous feminine, like Barbara mm-hmm. Creed's idea. And I've been intrigued by it. Because people also don't leave it at just that surface level. Like, it would be really easy to read Nola as a monstrous woman, right? Like, she's Mm -hmm. a mother who gives birth to these horrible creatures that go out and kill people. And she's fiercely protective. And she has to be murdered by the film in order to come to a kind of safe climax, quote unquote. We'll get to Candy later. But... I think that's overly simplistic and people have done a much more complicated, nuanced, interesting reading of this film and some of these other films that we've talked about, because you're right. It is like how men use their quote unquote brilliance in, you know, traditionally male dominated STEM fields. And they're always experimenting on women and it ends up like fucking killing them. I am curious about the the idea of the monstrous femme. And I've I've seen people talk about 
the mis- like calling him a misogynist in a way with mm-hmm. his female characters. Yeah. But then I also did find this article on the Criterion Collection by Carrie Rickey, mm-hmm. who was writing about the brood. And Carrie talks about how Cronenberg's gynophobia is a non-issue. It's blaming the victim. After all, aren't we talking about movies where male scientists use women as guinea pigs and then mm. are shocked, shocked when the test subjects become monstrous, voracious, etc.? <laughs> Let me invoke the Jessica Rabbit defense. The women are not bad. They're just drawn that way. It's the male scientists who have inadvertently transformed them into men's worst nightmares. Right. And so I think that that is a much more nuanced uh, approach to talking about his movies than to simply write it off because the characters might be in the same realm as misogyny. But like, Mm -hmm. I don't think that this is something that that Cronenberg is advocating for. That just these are the characters and this is what they're doing. Yeah, especially because, you know, you kind of started this conversation off by saying that this could have been a very different kind of movie. Like, Nola is a monster of sorts. Like, what she has become, her frightening journey that she goes on, it is scary and weird and visceral. It's a great example of body horror. You know, people love the end of this movie. Like, you screenshot it, and normies just lose their goddamn minds because it's (laughs) like, what is that? And you're like, it's an external womb. It's not that much, but sure. Um But yeah, I mean, I think it is too simplistic to suggest that Cronenberg is just a misogynist because he keeps doing this to women. A, it's a narrative. It's not necessarily Cronenberg doing this to women. He's writing films about that kind of thing. But I think he's actually more interested in the kind of uneven power hierarchies of like what happens when you let men who have power, who have money, who, uh, you know, like at one point in this film, somebody says, well, he's a doctor, right? He's got an MD. And I'm just like, that doesn't absolve him from being a monster or being somebody that we shouldn't trust. Like, he's literally created some weird institute up in the hills. Does anybody know what he's doing up there? (laughs) I don't know. There's, I think there's something that you could take into account with the way in which he hypnotizes his patients there's like there's like a contention of like is it consent really like you Mm -hmm. are you are being very invasive into their inner traumas and you are trying to exercise them in a way of making them physical Mm -hmm. seems to be like the intent in order for the the patient to like fight it. But again, we're going into places that are so invasive and require a lot of trust. And he is presenting this as almost theater. I mean, he mm-hmm. has like a whole stage room of people that can come in and watch his his readings. It's very narcissistic for one. Oh, for but it's sure. also very publicly invasive, I should mm-hmm. say. Yeah, I, I almost wish that we got a better sense of what was happening in that very first scene with Mike, mm-hmm. because you're right, it is theater. We've literally got people who are there observing somebody claps and says, this man is a genius. This man is a genius. And then they're asked to leave by Raglan's himbo assistant who just says, <laughs> okay, the show is over, get back on the bus. And I'm like, is this for like medical journals? Is is this newspaper reporters? Who are these people? And I wish we just had a little more clarification. But I almost wonder if Cronenberg is trying to make it so that Raglan is a villain, but he's not an ogre. Like, it's almost better if we don't know exactly what he's doing. Because, I mean, Frank just sort of stops in because he's there to pick up his daughter. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like... But the doors are open and you can just walk in like it could right. anyone. <laughs> Is this like the the new version of like a Grand Guignol type thing? Mm-hmm. Like are we getting people in to like witness 
the trauma of a man taking off his his shirt and being covered in boils, psycho yeah, Ooh. plasmics or whatever it's called. <laughs> Why can't I never think of what that name is? But because yeah. it's a weird made up word. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I do want to circle back to what you said about how much trust and maybe how he's hypnotizing these people because it's very evident in that scene with Mike that there there's an element of role playing and theatricality to it mm-hmm. but there's a moment later on where there's no one watching and he goes in with Nola and she's having an episode she's tried to call Frank but really she's reached the school teacher and had a conniption fit on her ass mm. and Raglan says you know you're in isolation you're not supposed to do this and she is in a state, right? She almost looks like she's in some kind of trance. And then she looks over at him and they go into this daddy role play thing. And it's like, this woman is not mentally fit right now, but apparently the way to bring her out or to calm her down is to have her address you as daddy. And I get it. We've seen the role play before. So we know that he does this with male patients as well, but there is that overarching just discomfort with the way that he becomes like someone literally says my surrogate father figure My surrogate father yep they're just like shit my surrogate father threw me out my real father threw me out Mm -hmm. like that's that's incredibly damaging (laughs) yeah and like you said it's it's almost a different form of generational trauma because it suggests it doesn't have to just be familial to fuck Mm -hmm. you up yeah oof which is fascinating. Like, there are points, like, I've watched this movie a bunch of times, and I love it. It's it's actually one of my favorite Cronenberg films, if only because I think, to me, it's really the starting point of when he has synthesized the things he's most interested in from his first yeah. couple features. But he's coalescing them into, dare I say, more accessible storytelling. So, like, I think the plot is better in the films from here on out, as opposed to rabbit and shivers which are a little bit more fly by night yeah i I was having the same thought when when i was finishing this movie and i was looking back at at shivers and and rabbit i was like this movie feels it's a step up right yeah it feels like a league of its own it's taking things that he was exploring in those two Mm -hmm. but i feel like the the narrative is more cohesive i think that there is I think the way that this movie ends is fantastic mm-hmm. and a step up from the previous two movies. I think this movie is synthesizing everything that he wants to say and doing it with a lot more skill than mm-hmm. his first two movies. I don't even know if it's like a confidence or a maturity or just maybe even better financial footing. It could be all three yeah. of those things. But I do love that he's not veering, right? Like he's still very much telling the same kinds of stories. It's just with a bit more of a polish, but even Mm -hmm. the ending that you mentioned, like, I love that this is another bleak as fuck ending. Yeah. But even more so because it's a fucking child. Right. And you realize that a, there's like two realizations with this one that inadvertently they have probably fucked up. Mm -hmm. Caroline, is that candy? Candy. Why am I thinking Caroline? I know I'm thinking Caroline because she looks a little bit like the girl from Poltergeist. Oh, Caroline. yes. You're not and wrong. So I'm like <laughs> stuck with that. But Candy is is just as fucked up as, let, let's be honest, Nola is by mm-hmm. her parents. We right. have like this, we, we get to see her parents, which I think is such an, an important and fascinating little aside with mm-hmm. this, where they are both divorced as well. Mm-hmm. They both seems to have had 
a very tumultuous relationship. Yeah. The mother might have been abusive mm-hmm. towards uh, Nola, and the father just sort of turned a blind eye to it. They're both drunks. They're both drunks, right. So we have that, and that kind of establishes this first generation. And then we have the dissolution of Frank's relationship with Nola through mm-hmm. <laughs> violence, through death. Yeah. That ends up not only kind of fucking up the kid on a like a mental air issue, but then we also see the marks on her skin saying mm-hmm. that this is probably going to happen again. Yeah, it, because we had that whole conversation about when Nola was a child, how she developed marks on her arms. Yeah. And I think her mother says, we couldn't figure out what was causing them. And it's like, you know, you, you just put that in your back pocket and it comes back at the end with candy. But it doesn't feel like conventional storytelling where we're just raising something so that, yeah, we can pay it off later. It has that kind of ominous dread that Cronenberg films carry so, so well, because we have seen how this cycle goes, right? It does lead to violence. It does lead to death. It does lead to madness. And there's poor little Candy with those two bumps on her skin at the end. Yeah. So I, I think one of the conversation I think the conversation you're referring to also is the one between Candy and the grandma because she asks why was mommy in the hospital so much right mm-hmm. and so we have that but then that's also like crisscrossed with Raglan talking to Nola mommies don't hurt their kids they never mm-hmm. do well they sometimes do like mine was fucked up and bad and so we we hear that this like idea about you hurt me, you beat me and scratch me, you threw me down the stairs. Mm-hmm. And then we also have, uh, what is her name? Juliana, the, the grandmother who is saying, oh, she had all these ugly bumps. Right. Hmm. And so it's like this two sides of the story and which one is, is correct. Well, I'm curious then, do you read the end as confirmation of one or do you think that both of those stories are actually true? Because what we see of Juliana is... <laughs> Like, she ain't a better grandma than she was a potential mother because, I mean, I love a drunk older woman in a horror film, Mm -hmm. particularly a Canadian one. Shout out to Miss Mac from Black Christmas. But, like, she gets up at one point and she's like, let's refill our drinks. And you're like, ma'am, you're drinking, I think, whiskey or some (laughs) kind of brown liquor. (laughs) it was J&B, I think. Uh, And it's, like, the middle of the day and you are babysitting a child. No, I clocked that this time. I missed it on my last watch. But I was like, I love that your let's refresh your drinks is literally, like, straight whiskey in a Mm -hmm. glass. Like... It is impressive. It's fantastic. Just to be clear, I am not shaming anyone for a having an alcohol dependency issue runs in my family. I totally get it. Mine too. I imbibe all the time. I'm keeping track of it. It's more movies use certain things as shorthands. And I think that this is a fantastic way to give us an extra little bit of insight into who Juliana was why Nola is the way she is and why Candy is the way she is. Like to me, it's just, it's smart filmmaking. It is. And we get that fantastic line of dialogue from Juliana where she says, 30 seconds after you're born, you have a past. And 60 seconds after that, you start to lie to yourself about it. Oh boy. That is grim and cynical. It is, but it also kind of is telling Mm -hmm. on Juliana in a way. Oh, for sure. The fact that she's saying this to a child, too, it's like, yes. oh, okay. She's saying this to the child, and then and then that is when she talks about uh, her, you know, Nola being in the hospital for these ugly bumps. Mm-hmm. And you got to wonder, A, is she talking about 
Nola in terms of like thinking about what happened in the past and misremembering it, or is she yeah. talking about herself? And I, I do think she's talking about herself, even though she might not be cognizant of that or conscious <laughs> of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I, I feel like we would be far more judgmental of this character if we weren't actually getting the other side of the story. Like not only do we get to hear a version of it from Nola, but then we also get an impression of what the marriage was like from Barton, the the husband who comes in from Halifax after she's been murdered. And, you know, he, he also has an alcohol dependency issue, but he clearly also has some fond memories. Like when he revisits the old family house, you get this glimpse into what that marriage was like and what kind of home life Nola would have grown up in. And you can see that there was affection to it, but also a lot of problems. Honestly, I mean, I think one of the things that that this film might be saying is that it doesn't really matter which side is right. Mm -hmm. Regardless, the kid is seeing things and, and yes, and it's the impact of what happened to Nola. Cause she obviously, she obviously feels that, her parents didn't care for her. A, the father looked away when she got hit, mm-hmm. and B, the mom is hitting her. Yeah. And now we have Candy, who let, let's be honest, how I don't know how a kid would, would make sense of everything that just happened, mm-hmm. other than the fact that my mom is now gone, right? And my mom tried to kill me <laughs> at one point, potentially. Oh boy. You could be thinking, and so like, regardless of what the truth is and what really happened, that there's the scientist and he blah 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 and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. from her perspective. We are getting her parents failed her. And I I think at the end of the day, that's why this film works so well for me is because whether you believe Raglan is a mad scientist or he's brilliant and it just got away from him, it almost doesn't matter because the real meat of the story is about this marriage. Like, that's why I think it's important that Raglan is the one who sort of circles it. He provides the sci-fi horror aspects of it. But really, this is a film about a couple that are getting divorced and how they are fucking up their daughter. Like, it's exactly what Cronenberg says it is. Yeah, absolutely. I I do. So one of the notes, and I had to highlight it, though, not Mm -hmm. to to change subject, but one of the things that just jumps out at me is how ineffective the police are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The comment, the line, and I had it written down when I when I took note of this for our My Scarred for Life episode, and I highlighted it on this Mm rewatch because they completely miss the little fucked up kid creature thing in the house and Mm -hmm. his comment is the thing was in the house we weren't looking for anything that small (laughs) it's a child size we're not talking about the size of like marcel the shell with shoes on here this is a a child (laughs) that had to hide someplace what where were you looking i mean i think to some people that's a testament to how powerful and strong the brood are like these things look like children but they can beat you to death with their bare hands so I think that's the policing. Oh, well, we thought it was going to be a big, strong man, because that's what we default to in cases of extreme violence. But yeah, it's also like, there's there's a weird commentary about the police and also the sensational nature of how crime gets reported. Because my takeaway on this rewatch was, we literally have a picture of a dead brood child on the (laughs) front page of the yep. newspaper <laughs> the autopsy like it's an autopsy uh-huh. like, and it's the where front did you page. get that picture <laughs> <laughs> who took this who leaked this ah <laughs> uh, 
I mean, you know, true crime fiction, right. you know, like true crime aficionados that hasn't changed. Oh my God. <laughs> Sensationalism. <imagine? laughs> If this film was remade, which P.S., I think this movie is ripe for a remake or a sequel that addresses what Candy becomes as an adult and kind of takes the story into different directions. Because I think it would just be like everything is there. It's ready for the, the picking. But yeah, this movie, if it was remade in a contemporary fashion, it would be really fascinating to be like, oh, would we deal with the conspiracies of like, little demon dwarf children like <laughs> go down the reddit pathway or something <laughs> yeah seriously but speaking of the the creatures though mm-hmm. um i love that we get this very brief but very like detailed explanation of the the physiology of the creatures mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird, right? Because previously, we get like a very generic sense of like, how do the slugs work? How does the mm-hmm. rabid rabies infestation work? And here it's like, oh, we're full alien autopsying this. Yes, yes. I love the little line. Again, it's a throwaway thing that his vision of the world is very distorted, mm-hmm. sees things in black and white. Yeah. And there we go. We mm-hmm. have this theme about looking at everything as black and white, but there is a lot of nuance and there's a lot of messiness in between right. those two colors. And I, so I think that including that line in there is, is such a little mm-hmm. almost throwaway line, but it also kind of ties into the, one of the themes of uh, that the brood is exploring. Yeah, no, it's such a huge fucking tell. It's really easy to both miss, as you suggested, but also I think overlook in terms of, Oh, we're talking about the creatures. But if we look at this film as, as you said, generational trauma, the things that are done to us ends up becoming cyclical, we repeat Mm -hmm. them. It's very much like, oh, these things are the creation of Nola and also Dr. Raglan and Candy is the creation of Frank and Nola. Like, it's such an obvious, like, oh, when you do bad things, your kids are going to be the ones who get impacted. And that includes things like these brood creatures. And also, I think Nola see th- sees things in black and white. In, mm-hmm. in particular, she's not getting the full side of the story because that the moment when she calls Frank and right. Mrs. Mayer picks up and she's like, all of a sudden, you know, are you having your own little private PTA meeting? <laughs> you bitch! You, you bitch! bitch. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, this – honestly, every time I watch this movie, I just think – Poor mayor. Oh, she did not deserve this fate. She is literally just trying to be there for this girl. And she gets caught up in this power play between these divorcing couples. I know. And I, I love that, that she, she kind of leaves and she's like, uh, this is a little too complicated for me. Mm-hmm. I'm out. Mm-hmm. I just love I love that moment because she's like, I y'all need to like figure this shit out. I'm gone. Right. Well, I'm curious. Uh, I don't know if this is 1979 speak for, are we meant to believe that Frank is either courting her or there is a kind of implied intimate or sexual relationship? Like, cause it's a, a bit weird that a daycare employee would come to your house to babysit and maybe she's just the nicest woman ever. But I'm curious, do you read it the other way? I go back and forth, Joe. Okay. I, I honestly do. Like sometimes I'm like, there's obviously something there because mm-hmm. yes, a low-paid mm-hmm. <laughs> teacher is not going to be like, yes, let me put my life on hold and watch your kid for mm-hmm. a couple hours. Like, 
I don't. Well, then, in that moment when she when she is leaving, the line that you said that feels more like a oh we we can't take this any further. We can't become a couple, or I yeah. won't date you because shit with your wife is complicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I I do think there might be something there, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It's 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 very nebulous. Right. I guess. Do you do you have thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's it's up to us like Cronenberg doesn't make it explicit so we just have to default assume whatever reading we want but I mean yeah I I definitely read it as there was some kind of flirtation they were maybe exploring something because even like I don't know would you answer somebody else's phone I guess maybe it could have been Frank but I mean I I think back then you they probably would just because yeah, it could be it could be anyone, and you don't have your own personal phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember babysitting and doing the same thing. Right. Yeah. So hmm. maybe. But one of the other things that I guess jumped out at me more now that I we've this is my my third Cronenberg working up from you know the mm-hmm. beginning is how much more scary this movie is than the previous two. Oh, interesting. Okay, because I find they're all nihilistic. They all have the bleak ending. This one feels so much more contained. Like it doesn't have the kind of world stakes that the other two potentially have. But I'm curious, why do you think then that this one's scarier? I, I think the the attacks um are just really brutal. Mm, and there's there's okay. a couple yeah. attempts at jump scares. Uh for instance, after the grandmother is is viciously, viciously mm. murdered mm-hmm. and Candy walks into the, the kitchen and is surveying the scene. And then we quickly get the two hands jumping out mm-hmm. and grabbing and leaving the blood. And that's like our first glimpse of what did this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I was like, Ooh, that's, that's kind of creepy. It's a great image. I love the lingering blood stains on the, mm-hmm. um, the banister. Yeah. There's that. Then there's a couple other, like the, the attack on the teacher is very vicious to the point where it's oh, like, boy. this is, we, we, there's kids in this room. Mm-hmm. They're watching, horrified as their teacher is is murdered in front of them. I'm like, this is yeah. more in your face scary than I got from either Rabbit or Shivers personally. I think what you've latched onto, yeah, like these these are more conventional sort of jump scares that we're maybe used to, or like horrific imagery that we're mm-hmm. more likely to see in some other films. I think the other difference is that in the two previous films, the attacks were shorter, so they weren't yeah. as sustained. Whereas here, as you suggested, like these are really mean, they're very visceral, but they also seem extended. Like we are watching this teacher and this grandma get hit in the face with mallets, and uh, I think even the the grandfather he gets hit a bunch of times with those little mini snow globe things. Yep. It's rough, but it goes on. Yeah, and I think that's like what surprises me. There's a viciousness to this mm-hmm. that I I do feel like I don't want to say that Shivers and Rabbit are like clinically detached in terms of like that empathy, right? But compared to this one, I felt each hit a lot more. I should say that, mm. that happens in this, and it just I don't know. I I felt more invested in what was happening with right. the characters than the previous two. 
Well, I think that's also the virtue of having a smaller cast, like a, a more mm-hmm. centralized narrative, a more sustained focus on just a few people. We actually get to know these people, even though I would argue we don't know Miss Mayor that well. We don't know Grandma that well, but we're spending a bunch of time with them in the lead up to the attack. So when they do go down, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. It's not some anonymous truck driver. Exactly. Okay, speaking of the the grandmother's death, mm-hmm. is this something that's in Canada, or is this something that used to be in Canada with the the milk and orange juice uh, locker? <laughs> on the, like, what, you've never seen milk get delivered through like a little latch in your house? <laughs> I, no, I, I haven't. I haven't, Joe. <laughs> uh, I can't say that I ever experienced this personally, but like we had an Eggman who would deliver eggs to us every Friday. And it seriously, was, yeah, it was a very oh. weird thing. Like I don't even know how we got onto it. He had a farm outside of the city, and we got into his regular rotation so that we were always getting fresh kind of non-grocery store eggs like they were farm fresh but um i i feel like this is something i might have seen more in my grandmother's time okay so it's curious though like the brood was shot in toronto so uh apparently if i wanted to i could go and see the soma free clinic if i could figure out where the fuck that building is in northern toronto (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I feel like grandmother's house is very well designed in terms of like the wallpaper and that kind of stuff to just give us a sense of, you know, it's a little bit of garishy yellow colors, but Mm -hmm. it's got a kind of naturalistic wallpaper. I don't know. Also, music by Howard Shore. Mm -hmm. This is his first score his debut and apparently he will work with david cronenberg on all except one of his films in the future oh really Mm -hmm. okay they're long-term collaborators hell yeah it's a great score it is one of those like i've been waiting to do this forever and i'm going big Uh (laughs) uh-huh it it, it accentuates the the horror of this too because like i just i don't know it has the more kind of classic horror movie Mm -hmm. vibe to to the score than i remember hearing in shivers and, and rabid yeah. it's just it's it's stylish and i'm mm-hmm. like this is the movie that gave us one of the best one of the best composers i would say of the last uh however many gosh 40 50 years <laughs> don't go there yeah <laughs> yeah it definitely confirms how much more impactful and effective sequences can be when you've got a really great score attached to them right mm-hmm like, it almost makes me wonder, ooh, if we could get a retroactive Howard Shore score for some of those sequences in Shivers or Rabid, I wonder if they would come alive to us in a different way. I mean, I feel like the answer is obviously yes, but... Yeah, I, I would I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> so, Terry, this is the final Cronenberg of the 70s. So even though we've already moved into the 80s with David Lynch because he makes fewer films, uh, this is to a certain extent, the end of the first decade of Cronenberg's career. It is, yeah. Wow. So I'm I'm curious to see if you start to see continued connections as we as we go into future Cronenberg films. Like for me, this is kind of the kicking off point. Like we're going to see a lot more films that are of this ilk as okay. we move forward, at least until he hits the end of his body horror era, which is like late 80s okay mm-hmm. yeah i'm like i'm contemplating that this this it's weird that this was like a decade because when did 
when did the other two come out? 75 for one and... It's 75 and uh, 77. Okay. You think this is more indicative of what we're going to see in the in the 80s in the next decade? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it always helps to look at director's outputs by decade. Like, I don't know how many mm-hmm. of them are thinking like, oh, I'm in the 80s now. I should make an 80s kind of <laughs> right. movie. I don't think they're that conscious of that kind of stuff. But to me... As we talked about the the sort of level of maturity, the confidence, the more cohesive storytelling, to me, this is the point where Cronenberg's career flips and okay. his successive films will look more like this. Like we won't really see, I think, a retraction or like a pulling back into more of that Shivers and Rabbit. Like that period of experimentation is more or less over. Although I'll confess, I can't speak for scanners because <laughs> that's the one that I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're moving into a decade of, of movies that I have seen, but I have not, I have not seen scanners. Mm-hmm. How do we curious? Yeah. Cause this film we've both seen multiple times before mm-hmm. and then we're going to have to watch scanners and we'll both be Cronenberg virgins for that one. Yes. <laughs> uh, I can't wait. I'm really excited to, I'm honestly more excited for this next kind of, set mm-hmm. of decade of films for for Cronenberg because it's a lot that uh I mean there's a couple that I've seen The Fly and Dead Zone but there's mm-hmm. a lot that the people keep talking about Dead Ringers you know yeah Videodrome Videodrome yep that was the other one like these are all movies that people talk about constantly with Cronenberg and I'm like I've never seen them so I'm mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to this this next set of movies <laughs> Well before we get there we have to jump back over into David Lynch territory but the good we news is, is that we're also firmly into banger territory for David Lynch so uh we really take off and we're actually going to move into the back half of the 80s for our next venture with 1986's literally seminal no uh with 1986's possibly one of the most important american films ever made oh velvet wow Mm -hmm. this one this is like one of the most important films it's iconic it's not dune (laughs) <laughs> it's it's not dune no terry <laughs> for a dune moment i was like the... terry we've already covered dune but i was like oh you're commenting on the quality of dune mm-hmm. 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 dune isn't the most like impressive american release ever uh sure the new one is yeah oh <laughs> that'll be our fire. next venture who who will be our next double feature it'll be villeneuve and somebody else <laughs> An experimental U.S. sci-fi director. They got to share for two first names. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Otherwise, we've lost. We've lost the plot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm excited to watch Blue Velvet because, uh, again, I don't know nothing. Oh, man. <laughs> I know nothing. Get ready for Dennis fucking Hopper huffing on like a gas tank and Isabella Rossellini naked on a front lawn. It is wild. Roger oh Ebert, surprisingly enough, totally fucking hated this movie. I am, I am shocked. Right? I am shocked to hear that because, um, there was, where was it? There was a quote about the brood where he called it a bore and disgusting in ways that are not entertaining. <sighs> I mean, I think my favorite review from the brood, I can't remember who said it, but it's listed on that Wikipedia page. It's like, this is, movie was made by people who don't like people who maybe don't like themselves. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> Go fuck yourself, 1970s film critics. What are you talking about? Yeah, I, I, I have to admit, I do love, 
I do love some of the reviews of horror movies from this time period, like mm-hmm. Leonard Malton saying, Edgar eats her own afterbirth while midget clones beat grandparents and lovely young school teachers to death with mallets. It's a big, wide, wonderful wo- world we lived in. Mm-hmm. I, people, I, <laughs> people just really fucking hated horror. Yeah, seriously. Like, the the fact that you can watch this movie and not see the artisticness of it, like, you just want to focus on the savagery of the attacks, I think is really telling of critics. And I sometimes wonder, like, we think that this is stuff that used to happen, but I feel like this is actually just emblematic of how people have always and continue to treat horror films. Absolutely. It's like, when you're just focusing on the violence... You're missing the picture. Right. And I do think that uh, some of these reviews, there's um, there's one from the uh, Los Angeles Times that um, praised the film, but said, perhaps Cronenberg means to make an extreme comment upon the irresponsibility of psychiatrists and parents, but the brood is so totally sickening, it's irresponsible work itself. How sad. I, I think you're missing <laughs> something here. You, you started off strong. You've got uh-huh. some of those stuff right there at the beginning. But I mean, I... Hmm. I feel like that's a whole other conversation, honestly, just about how people want art that reflects their own values and how if a film dares to have morally challenging imagery, characters, narratives, then yes, all of a sudden what? It's irresponsible? To whom? Whose responsibility is this film reneging on? Exactly. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah. um, I'm very interested to see (laughs) what other critics said about blue velvet because (laughs) yeah that that film has really taken a a pitchfork to the american dream (laughs) i cannot wait Mm -hmm. all right well we will check it out next time but uh terry if people want to talk about the brood and its depiction of the police force (laughs) how would they get a hold of you <laughs> uh, you will find me on a Twitter and Hive and Instagram at Gaily Dreadful. I'm also on TikTok, but I don't ever use. I just like to look at hot men cooking yeah. things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, but that's me. And Joe, if people want to tell you where that the house is and mm. the place is that where they filmed this in Toronto, right? Yeah. Then where will they find you besides Toronto? <laughs> yeah, if people want to pay a visit to the Soma Free uh, place, let me know. <laughs> we'll coordinate. I can be reached at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And uh, we'll give a quick shout out to the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad for hosting the show. We're recording these episodes in a vacuum, so I literally have no idea what shows are airing on the network right now, <laughs> but they're all great. So make sure you're giving them a chance. And uh, yeah. Until we return for Blue Velvet, that's it for Sexy and Surreal. Keep it sexy. (laughs) The Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.